Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. John McAdam, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. I'm going to kick off with some bad news. Uh, we're recording this Sunday, September 5th, and it's 2.12. I found out at 2.05 that a friend of mine, a friend of the wrestling community, had passed away. Uh, rest in peace, Seth Hansen. Seth, Seth had been a guest on this show, and I was looking forward to having him back at some point, and obviously that's not going to happen. And like I said, right now, I heard it seven minutes ago, so I'm just trying to keep it together and do the show. And with me... Finally, bringing back uh, another great guest returning, Jace Nakarado. Jace, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on, John. And yeah, I just uh, saw the news as well. And, you know, Seth provided such great newspaper clipping knowledge on Twitter over the last couple of years. And it was always really nice to see his stuff get retweeted and to, um, you know, just be provided that gateway into wrestling's past. So, yeah, tremendous loss and rest in peace to Seth Hansen. Yeah, I mean, I would put up results let's just say random date september 5th 1979 and seth would come back with a, a newspaper advertisement for the exact card i mean the guy was a a human wrestling library human wrestling google yeah yeah it's, it's great great skill to have and you know if anybody is interested in that kind of stuff just look at newspaperclippings.com or newspapers.com check your local newspaper and you know it's just uh it's a great skill to have to be, you know, insightful and knowledgeable about this kind of stuff and try to keep the legacy going. And just anybody can be a historian. And it's going to be great to see people kind of pick up where Seth had left off. Yeah, absolutely. I hope everyone had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Uh, you may not know this, Jace. Here in the States, Memorial Day kind of kicks off the summer. The pool opens Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day is kind of the unofficial end of summer you come home from school on the tuesday after labor day and they don't mess around the pool has been drained do wow. you guys have that up there uh well yeah it's labor day yeah so it is a long weekend for us up here um okay. yeah just kind of the the standard form i guess more than anything but uh interesting about the pool scenario i actually never had figured that <laughs> all the pools would be drained right away Oh, no, they they sent the message. You'd come home the Tuesday after Labor Day and like, no, pool is closed until next May. But you guys have Boxing Day up there. Is that when you put on gloves and hit each other in the face? Uh, it depends. We have to get the salmon out of the uh, the freezer first. We have to dethaw it. We have to kind of slap ourselves with salmon first, cover ourselves in maple syrup. And then, you know, if we're cognizant after all the beer that we've been drinking, we maybe <laughs> get the boxing gloves on a little bit. All right, I can see that. And because you have Boxing Day, your new nickname is Jace K.O. Nakarado. Spread the news to your friends. I'll try. I only have like three of them, so hopefully the listeners can kind of make that a little bit of a thing. But I know Zesty has kind of been a, a term for me as well uh, with some other people kind of in the, uh, the <laughs> thing. I'm not I don't calling know if, you Zesty. I don't know if I want to continue that moniker. It's not that I'm a nice guy. You know, if you've, if you've met me in person, if you've met me at CAC, I'm a nice dude. It's just... I just I don't have time. Like I don't have time for this uh, internet buffoonery, you know. So sometimes I can get a little bit uh, snide, and sometimes I use ellipses to kind of make a point at the end of a sentence. But it's all in good fun. I mean, I really don't have a lot of haters. Well, maybe I do, but I don't. I don't hate anybody. It's just it is what it is. It, it is what it is. That's the best way to put it. I've been saying that since the '90s. 
I want to invite everyone to follow me on Twitter. Just uh, if you put in the words John McAdam, follow the guy uh, who has Morocco in Maine fighting with a chair. Also, you want to be part of our Facebook group. Uh, just search Stick to Wrestling in Facebook. Put in a an accept request, and I will immediately accept you as soon as I see it. One big reason is because we occasionally have shows where you just get to sit back and ask us questions. We, it's called a mailbag episode, and we're going to have one of those. Before I get rolling on that, I want to thank Mark Rowland for his generous contribution to Stick to Wrestling. Um, thank you very much, Mark. If you want to donate to the show, because otherwise I'm doing this for free, prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. You can PayPal me through that. No amount is too small, and certainly no amount is too large. And with that, I will get rolling on the show. David Rapp asked, I, I guess this question is, is specifically to me, but Jace, you have a story about this. What's the weirdest comp video you were ever asked to make, and what was the hardest one you were ever asked to make chase what anecdote do you have to share with us that is along these lines so for everybody who's uh you know never really heard of me and still about 95 percent of people haven't if you're not a frequent listener to any of the arcadian vanguard podcast just like a little brief history of me and wrestling um i'm 32 i just turned 32 years old so you know i will admit that and i've said in the past on you know the stick to wrestling facebook group or the mothership facebook group for 605 i don't know everything and I obviously didn't get to see everything. And to be brutally honest, at this juncture in my life as well, I really don't have time to see everything. So for me, That's a good I, thing. I, yeah, it is a good thing. Well, it's good, too, because I love to learn and I love watching new stuff. The last time I was on, we had reviewed, uh, I believe, it was Clash of the Champions 14 or 14 or 15, correct. 14 or 15. So One that was and, and, and February. That was that was the first. Yeah. And that was the first time seeing that. So and that was fun to kind of get back to that, you know. Because for me, WCW 91 to 93 is a bit of a lapse in my memory. Like, it's a bit of a, a dark age, I guess, in a way, for me not to kind of bring up recollections. Anyways, so ultimately, I didn't start really watching wrestling until I was about 15 years old. So about 2004-ish. So, you know, that was kind of the height in WWE where that, one, uh, what was his name? Uh, well, I can't really say his name, but the one Canadian guy who, unfortunately, we can't mention his name anymore. Uh, WrestleMania 20, kind of around that era, that time of the period kind of when he was the world champion so i started kind of getting into that and kind of when edge started kind of getting a little popular another canadian wrestler so i started around then i unfortunately never have made a comp video i've never experienced the ability to watch a comp video i don't think i would like a comp video because to me i just can't really sit and watch the same person or same thing over and over again but for me it's not a wrestling related comp video anecdote it's more of a general comp video anecdote there is a video on YouTube right now, and I'm a hockey fan. Uh, I'm from Canada, so I guess it's an obvious kind of thing. But then again, you could be from New York or Boston, and you could also be a hockey fan, which most people are. So NHL defenseman Charlie Huddy, member of uh, all of the Edmonton Oilers, 1980s Stanley Cup victories. I was going to say he was part of the, the Gretzky Oilers, right? Gretzky Oilers, yeah. yeah. And then he played for a while in the LA Kings. My friend hit me to a video that is on YouTube right now. If you type in Charlie Huddy, H-U-D-D-Y, bad, B-A-D, there is a video that says Charlie Huddy sucks. And I've seen this video. It is about five minutes long. And it is a compilation of Charlie Huddy making really bad moves as an NHL defenseman on the LA Kings set to Michael Jackson's bad. Now, it may seem kind of silly and stupid, but... To me, it's one of the funniest things because 
when it comes to comps, I can't believe that somebody took the time and effort to go through LA Kings games and find all the mistakes that Charlie Huddy makes in terms of falling on the ice, giving the puck away, and set it to Michael Jackson's bad. So to me, that's just the quintessential comp, and it's really the only comp that I've really experienced, wrestling or sports or anything else. And that now, was it. I, I want to be fair to Charlie Huddy. If I had anyone had a long career, you could put together five minutes. I, it's not like I don't, I don't have a sense of humor about it. I mean, you could find five minutes of bad stuff of, of Ted Williams or Michael Jordan, for God's sake. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. I mean, to me, when I used to do videotapes in the 80s and 90s, I mean, comp tapes were my biggest nightmare. I used to charge, I don't know, like $40 of 1980s money for a two-hour comp. And, of course, you'd have that person who would list like 10 two-minute segments. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not – I'm losing money here. I'm working for like $4 an hour. So I changed it. So that, all right, it's $5 per segment. This was like in the 90s. Oh. And you'd have people complaining that, you know, oh, my God, it's it, this is a two-minute segment. I, don't, I shouldn't have to pay $5 for it. And I'm like, then don't get it. So then finally, you know, and, I'm, and I try to explain to people, look, you know, you're buying my time, please. And, and of course, now $5 per segment, a lot of people are getting one-hour matches, which is fine. I could do something else while this is running in the background. And finally, I just got tired of it. I'm like, you know, I'm not doing it for any price. And then my, my brother talks me into, look, there's got to be a number. There's got to be a number. So I put out some outrageous amount. And then, like, the Internet starts complaining that I'm ripping people off. <laughs> and, like, you know, <laughs> goodwill is lost. So finally, I just said I'm not doing these at any price. But when I was doing them for $5 a segment, this guy says, I want every honky-tonk man thing ever. Do you have it? I want it. I don't care how long it is, how short it is. I'm like, okay. So I go through. Here are all the honky-tonk matches I have. And I will go through my tapes. And every time I see a segment, you know, I'll put it on there. I'm like, but, you know, you have to pay for the matches first. Then you have to pay for the segments. And this guy bought like $550 of 1997 money worth of honky-tonk man footage. And I got the money and he got the tape and everyone was happy. And do you know if it was, have you ever gotten any orders where it was something like ironically? Because for me, and I, I will fully admit, you know, if I was back around in the early 90s, I'd probably order a tape of like the best of like Bulldog Bob Brown and oh. then just have it and then just rip people's faces off at a watch party and be like, yeah, this and ironically be like, yeah, he was so good. You know, just the Kansas What's City days. <laughs> it's a power move. I know. <laughs> Uh, no, no inviting Jace to parties, but yeah, that's probably, probably my weirdest one where the guy wanted every single second of, of honky tonk man footage. And if, if it was a 90 second promo, yeah, I'm coming to the Boston garden, September 12th, 1987. He was more than happy to pay $5 for it. So good for him. Anyway, uh, Sean Heimberger asks what would receive your vote? For the best-looking title belt of the pre-90s era, and conversely, what would be the ugliest? Jace, what do you got? So, I have two. I'm trying to whittle it down to one, but I'm again, I can, I'm so indecisive, I can never really think of anything coherently. So, for me, the one that pops up into my head is the fantastic NWA World Heavyweight Championship, the domed globe belt, but the original Harley race red strap, because I find that the red kind of makes it pop a little bit more. And that's the one that I think of more than the actual black belt itself. 
Okay, that's interesting because I've I've seen Jack Briscoe wearing that belt with the red background. I uh, I mean I I have a book that's dedicated to that belt, and what a surprise! That belt is my personal favorite, the one that was worn. Jack Briscoe was the first one to wear it when he got it after defeating Harley Race in Houston, and that was in effect until like April 1986, where they gave that big Goldie to Ric Flair which is not my least favorite title, but I, I did not like that championship belt. I thought it was way too big and way too gaudy. I agree. I was never really a big fan of the big gold belt either. I mean, it, I think it looks better for mid to late 90s WCW, but in terms of the Crockett stuff, it just it looked really out of place. Okay, so what would you, what's your pick for the ugliest belt? Ooh. Uh, my pick is, uh, funny enough, still with the NWA. For me, it's the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title and also known as the Burger King belt with the crown on the top. That belt was awful. I, I've i seen photos of, uh, you know, Nelson Royal and Denny Brown wearing it. And I don't know if, did Continental have a belt that was kind of the same as well? I don't remember if it was Continental, yes, but I, I do remember seeing another belt that did have the, the Burger King type at the top. Just gross i feel like you know i'm a portly fellow myself so regardless my stomach's gonna hang over the belt anyways i feel like it'd be super uncomfortable if you like you know we're sitting down or something and the belt like pokes you in the stomach i don't know that's just a instant hernia waiting to happen in my honest opinion the belt that's looking to put your eye out that's an ugly belt but my pick and i'll bet some of you have never seen this i'm not even sure if you can google it but the old southwest championship wrestling tag team title belt it was like almost a cow bovine design. It was like, it looked like a, a cow. I don't know how else to put it. Go Google that image. I'm sure it'll, you'll be disgusted with it. One other belt I wanted to discuss, because I don't know if this was the ugliest or the best, like the world-class championship, the American championship. It was so simplistic that I loved it, but it was, it was so simplistic. I don't know what to say. I just took a quick Google of the um, Southwest belt, and yeah, that's really gross. <laughs> just, seeing this, just seeing this big steer kind of looking at you. Um, yeah, the world-class one, yeah, like I'm just looking it up right now. It does look very, very interesting. I think for me, too, like another worse belt design, and I may get a log flack for this, but the 1983-1984 WWF heavyweight title, the green one with the giant copper penny looking logo and then the big side plates on the side what an ugly belt oh my god i remember when they granted that belt to bob backland after superstar billy graham destroyed the wwf championship that i mean had gone dated back to pedro morales that design and i was used to that design but i was i was also ready for something else i was ready for a change and I remember the Buddy Rogers corner where they they presented that belt to Bob Backlund. I was like, eh, I don't know about this. And then, like, I got a really good look at it. And I just I just did not like it, especially compared to the NWA World Championship belt, which which was my favorite. Absolutely. And even then, just compared to the the Eagle Pedro Morales one that was kind of similar to the um, one of the tag. I think it was kind of similar to like the uh, JCP tag belts, kind of like the Eagle kind of design with the gold. Kind yeah. of the same motif, but yeah, I, I like that one a lot more than the green one. It was just disgusting. Uh, I'm with you. I was not into that belt. Anthony Osiello writes, any idea why Vince never put Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura back together as a tag team after they finished their programs with Pedro Morales and Bob Backlund? 
This is late 1981, early, mid-1982. Jace, do you have anything to share on this? Unfortunately, John, I'm going to have to sit under the learning tree and listen to what you have to say, kind of like the rest of the listeners. When it comes to early 80s WWF, I'm very out of the loop when it comes to timelines and that kind of stuff. Didn't really see a lot of Adonis and Ventura. I guess they were the the East-West connection, I believe, because yes, Adonis, Adonis and uh, Murdoch were North-South. So, yeah, I, I secede to you, sir. Go ahead. All right. And Mr. Saito and Jesse Ventura were the Far East-West connection. Um, Anthony, I, I was actually looking forward to seeing Ventura and Adonis. You know, they, they did team in the WWF a little bit. I was hoping they would have a series against the Strongbow Brothers when the Strongbow Brothers were the WWF Tag Team Champions. As far as I know, they only had one match, and I think it was both Adrian and Jesse's last match in the WWF. This is June 28th, 1982. The reason they didn't have a run, as I learned later on, is because the WWF tag team scene was not a money-making scene. They would usually take care of like the the top babyface in a tag team, like you know Ivan Putski or Dino Bravo, whoever, and the other guy just wouldn't get would get less pay. But that was not a big money spot. And when they left, Jesse went back to the AWA, and Adonis went to Japan, and then Southwest Championship Wrestling. And those were just better paying gigs than mid-card in the WWF. So artistically, that's something I would have loved to see. I wanted to see it at the time, but now I, under- I understand why they didn't do it. Mm, okay. And just a quick question for you, too, just because I want to learn a little bit more. And I could obviously look this stuff up, but I'm here with you, John McAdam, the guru of uh, wrestling knowledge here. With regards to Jesse Ventura, when did exactly did he get the blood clots? Was it before or after parting with REO Speedwagon? <laughs> I think he was with the Rolling Stones. Um, no, I don't know. But I know, I think it was September 22nd, 1984. If it wasn't that date, it was right around then when he was scheduled to wrestle Hulk Hogan at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he had to pull out of that match and actually put his career on hold because of the blood clots. And um, Big John Studd took his place and Bobby Heenan made his WWF debut on that night. And so, yeah, it was it was right around if it wasn't on September 22nd, it was right around that time. Cool. Thanks for answering that. Hey, no problem. And um, what was I going to say? And Jesse, I mean, talk about finding a new career as an announcer. I mean, you never want to say, wow, that blood clot was a great break in your career. But it, it kind of turned out to be because they gave Jesse the role as an announcer. And I mean, boom, he I mean, without that, he would not be where he is today. And he's. Still kind of a B-list celebrity. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know what? Like I said, it's kind of before my time as well. But I've obviously heard uh, Jesse do commentary and fantastic. I mean, it's probably not the best. Doesn't rank in terms of the upper echelons of anything. Obviously better than Girdle Monsoon, clearly. But, uh, you know, got to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And he ran with it. There you go. I mean, Jesse, you know, he, he spawned a new generation of announcers because Every announcing team after that had to have some wise cracking heel in it. And that got a little bit overdone, in my opinion. But, you know, Jesse was kind of the, the grandfather of that. Nice. Fantastic. All right. What is your favorite wrestling family dynasty? Asks Brendan Jarvis. What do you got for us, Jace? So thinking about this and, you know, I'm trying to to quantify it in terms of what exactly makes a dynasty? Is it in terms of general notoriety? Is it in terms of individual successes of all the members? 
Is it financial success? Is it in-ring success? What exactly does that make? For me, the one name that I kept coming back to was the Funk Dynasty. Just looking at the, you know, the total of all the parts too. You know, you had Dory Senior, who was a great promoter in his own right, great star. Dory Junior, lauded as one of the best NWA champions of the entirety of the NWA Championship. And then you have the venerable Terry. You know, Terry, who is constantly reinventing himself. Obviously, was it Jack Briscoe that said that Terry Funk wasn't a good NWA champion? Like, I think he said Terry's style didn't necessarily fit into it. And that kind of makes sense, I guess, from Jack's perspective, because, you know, Terry's seen as more of the brawler type and not necessarily what the archetype of the NWA champion was supposed to be of that day. But in terms of names that you can go back to, I think it's a pretty safe bet for me to say that the Funk Dynasty is probably like the my favorite wrestling dynasty of all. Maybe the best. But then again, who's to say it is subjective versus objective? And that's uh, my two cents on it. I don't know if Jack Briscoe, if he said that at all, or if he was the originator of that being said. I have heard that said more than once, that Terry, he was a great wrestler, but there was a certain type that was an NWA champion, and he didn't fit the type, which I think is almost backward way of looking at it. Like, when you go over guys who could have been a great NWA champion, like, I think Bruiser Brody, if he would play ball with the promoters, would have been a great NWA champion. And people are like... Mm. No, he's too big. He's got the furry boots. And I'm like, but sometimes you have to break away from that mold. Ric Flair broke that mold because he was not a Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr. type. He had the big, long robes and the, the, the bleach blonde hair, and he redefined what an NWA champion was. So I think like a Stan Hansen could have done the same thing. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. I'm, I was just kind of sitting here while you were talking about it. And again, you know, like you said, it's breaking out of the mold and Brody being that wild man kind of archetype might have been nice to kind of have that differentiation between kind of the clean cut, quote, technical wrestlers of the title beforehand and kind of going into that new different direction with somebody like Brody. That's really interesting. I'll have to think more about that. You see, and Brody didn't always have to be a wild man. I mean, he could sit there and look straight into the camera and do a great interview. But that, that wasn't always his style. But like when he was on Georgia. You know, he made sporadic appearances, and I, I always loved his interviews. But anyway, my favorite wrestling family dynasty, and there are so many great ones to pick from, like the Funks, like Rocky Johnson and The Rock, mine was the Von Erics. And it's funny because when they were on TV out here you know, on Boston Channel 25 in the 80s, I did not like the Von Erics. I liked the Freebirds. I didn't like the good old boys from Texas. But now... As time has gone on, I've really grown to appreciate them. You have this unique dynamic where you have Fritz von Erich, who is a legend's legend. He's in every credible Hall of Fame. He could have been NWA champion. And he, he doesn't have one son. He doesn't have two. He has three sons out there wrestling, Kevin, Mike, uh, Kevin, Kerry, and David. And he, wrestling had never had that before. Three legitimate brothers. The Valiant brothers did not count, okay? <laughs> and they were they were so alike, yet they were all different in, in a certain way. And it was such a unique dynamic. That's why it stood out for me, and it's the favorite. I don't know how they would have juggled four Von Erichs because Mike debuted, like, December 1983, and David passed away February 1984. So... I think had David st stuck around, like that would have been a tough one. I don't know how they would have done it, but 
Fritz was determined to, to push his kids, including Mike. So, but yeah, that because of the unique dynamic, they were my favorite. Absolutely. And that makes total sense too. I was thinking about the Von Erics, but I was kind of, you know, trying to quantify it more in terms of general success and, uh, you know, they were successful in their own right. But to me, I gravitate more towards the individuality aspects of Dory Sr., Dory Jr. and Terry, as opposed to the Von Erics as a whole. Like I couldn't, you know, you could obviously take Carrie and Kevin, David in his own right, but I just couldn't see all three of them kind of filling that void for me. But hey, c'est la vie. Absolutely. All right. So Jace K.O. Nakarado, have you ever seen Bobby Davis work as a manager? Because Brad Brightsman, friend of mine, friend of the show, is asking, you know, how good was he really? I've seen a little bit of the YouTube video that I believe was the kinescope footage of him, I think, in the studio. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how much footage there is. Uh, obviously, it is very limited, as Brad says. But, yeah, I mean, I've I never have. I've never seen him work work, but I've seen a two minute promo. And basically, like everybody has said, Bobby Davis was the archetype for somebody like Bobby Heenan. So. You know, it wasn't necessarily, and, and I, me going into it, I was thinking more it was going to be more of the snarky-esque kind of Bobby Heenan bit, but because of the time and, you know, circumstances of the 1950s, give or take, 50s, 60s, you know, he was more of a kind of a little bit cocky, but very more professional, I guess, in a way, with a little bit of biting, you know, barbs, but I, I can't really comment on anything else, but from what I've seen, yeah, I'm sure he was fantastic, but... um Lost to time, I guess, for the most part. What about you, John? Well, uh, little anecdote. Uh, back in 96, I bought out someone's tape collection. I forget his last name. His first name was Ken, and he was from Texas. And, I mean, literally about 10 boxes that were the size of miniature refrigerators show up at the post office. They, they didn't even try to deliver them. Like, yeah, come get these. <laughs> wow. And I, well, I got a stack of, like, tapes from the 50s and 60s. And as I'm going through it, I, I see a, a couple of Bobby Davis interviews and he was like Bobby Davis, but he was a little bit more, what's the word, a subtle. And that's just the difference between 50s, 60s wrestling and 70s, 80s wrestling, where where everything was, you know, uh, a little bit louder, shall we say. And I thought he was really effective. He was like a toned down Bobby Heenan, but that's all you had to be at that point. I was so impressed with him. That I reached out to like a group email of like, you know, really smart people in the wrestling business. And I was like, hey, you know, I see this Bobby Davis guy. What was his story? And someone wrote back and was like, oh, he was one of the greatest managers of all time. He just made more money selling real real estate than being in wrestling. So he didn't have a long career. But I mean, what I saw of him prompted me to ask, hey, who is this guy? What's going on? So obviously I was impressed. Awesome. That's great to hear. And again, was, you know, success story with I believe Bobby Davis bought into Wendy's franchises, I believe. Yes. Was the was the kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, great restaurant. I haven't been to Wendy's in a couple of years, but Baconator, always a classy burger. So somebody classy like uh, Bobby Davis leading the way for class on class on class and Greece. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Baconator, man. Don't you, you're going to give me bad eating habits. Just, just suggesting such a thing. Me All too. Right. And I'm, and I'm on a diet and I'm trying to, I'm trying to watch my weight too. So I'm really trying to stick to it. And I really want to go get a Baconator now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have a lot to say about this question. Hey, Sue Salas Rodriguez asks, what hurt the business more magazines, the observer, we can, we can say newsletters in general or the internet. Jace KO, what do you got to say? Well, for me, I'm coming at it from a different perspective as well, because, you know, at the time that I got in, 
I didn't know about the observer until like 2007 ish until like, you know, it was kind of commonplace. And I said like, what's this observer that everybody's talking about? Who exactly is Dave Meltzer? So from my perspective and the way that I'm coming into wrestling, I think that it's like anything in our age today. I think that the internet probably hurt the business quite a bit, uh, especially. And I think that kind of speaks well outside of wrestling. And I apologize for getting on a tangent, but you know, when it comes to technology today, I think technology in the last 10 to 12 years has completely ruined our society for the most part, because everybody thinks that they're an expert. And although some of it is warranted for information and everything like that, a lot of it can be harmful. And uh, I'm not trying to get this political. You can edit this out if you need to, but especially with everything going on with the current situation of the world, <clears throat> pandemic, I think that everybody thinks that they know more than they need to because it's all on the internet, which isn't necessarily the case. And that could be the same thing too with wrestling, you know, and the internet. It could be when it comes to people spoiling spoilers for tapings and stuff. And a lot of that mystique is gone. I know that people have said that the observer was hurting the business just because, you know, it was going a little bit too inside and, you know, Dave has his reasons for it. I don't think the observer necessarily hurts as much as the internet does because of the way that we have access to that information. The Observer was a lot more, I don't want to say niche, but obviously it had only, you know, a couple thousand subscribers, less than 10,000, I'm assuming, during the uprise in the early 90s, give or take. But with the internet, everybody can access it. So everybody kind of knows everything. And it's different times today. That's where I'm going to go. I don't think magazines necessarily hurt the business just because a lot of the magazines obviously were kayfabe with a lot of the, you know, Stanley Weston, Bill After mags and that kind of stuff. So I think that maybe brought a little bit more awareness to it, but it obviously wasn't hurting the business. I mean, in hindsight, yeah, some of the articles can seem kind of silly, especially like, you know, the Lusahati mags um, talking about Freddie Blassie, women can't keep their hands off me, you know, like that kind of <laughs> stuff. But from my perspective, I, I kind of feel like the internet maybe hurt it a little bit more. And, and my perspective too, as well, you know, growing up 2004, 2005, that was the first time that I had realized that SmackDown at that time was taped. Because a friend made a bet with me saying there was a match. I think it was 2004, 2005. It was when JBL was the champion on SmackDown, the WWE champion. And he said, I'll bet you five bucks that Booker T loses tonight and JBL wasn't going to lose the belt. And I said, you know what? Like Booker's kind of going into it. Uh, you know, I was a little, I wasn't, I wouldn't say a mark, but I mean, obviously I just didn't know about the taping. So I gave him the five bucks and he told me literally a week later, oh yeah, it was taped. I found it from this website. And I believe it was like WrestlingNewsWorld.com, one of the kind of the early internet websites, I guess, or kind of the established ones. And I just thought, man, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> I wonder what everybody else is thinking. So that's my perspective. John, I know you probably have a much different perspective than I, but I'm just going from my perspective as a 32-year-old. I'm going to say the internet. Jason, you know what? One reason why I like having you on the show Sometimes having a younger person on the show, Jason, you're, you're exactly 24 years younger than me. You do bring a different perspective to stick to wrestling. I want you to know that's appreciated. I mean, I, you know, yeah, sometimes it, it helps if I have someone right around my age and we're talking about the same thing. And, you know, we, we've experienced the world through the same set of eyes. Sometimes it's better when it's different. And that's one big reason why I like having you on the show. Going off on a tangent. I worked with a woman who would look at me and she would say, this technology is going to kill us. We, we, we cannot handle it. It's too much for us. Okay. 
This was 1996 or 1997, right around then, before we had Facebook, before we had Twitter, before we really had the good stuff that that frankly messes us up. You know, don't get vaccinated. You know, use this horse dewormer. I, oh, I've God. done research. Like, what research have you done, dumbass? And, and, listening, and to she, Joe, listening to Joe Rogan podcast, apparently. Yeah. You know, back when I was your age, Jace, Joe Rogan didn't have a platform for, you know, to spread dumb shit, quite frankly. Oh, he's just a really crappy B-list actor on news radio. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 that would be it. You, you know, some guy in Worcester would have a dumb radio show that a thousand people would listen to. And it was relatively harmless. And now we've got people with these platforms and, and frankly, they're destructive. And this woman saw the future 25 years ago. But anyway. I have a lot to say on the on the actual question Jesus threw at us. Let's go over them one by one. I don't think any of these things hurt the business at all. Magazines, I think, promoted the business. It kind of, for me personally, it kind of sucked me in. I don't know if I would have remained a wrestling fan in the 70s and 80s if it were not for the after magazines. You know, it it helped create more interest. So I think that the magazines were a big plus to the business. The Observer, I think, did more good than harm. I can see the harm because like Twitter or Facebook, there are some people who cannot handle The Observer, or at least could not handle it in the 80s. They would learn a real wrestler's name and start screaming it for no apparent reason. But that was the only real harm The Observer did. And, and frankly, that that's no harm at all. I think The Observer makes you want to continue to be a wrestling fan because if you enjoy the observer, well, you got to keep watching wrestling, right? <laughs> it, it, just, yeah. it just makes you a a bigger fan. And the internet, look, a lot of people will say the internet ruined wrestling. I think the internet definitely changed wrestling. But let's focus on this. 1995, I would go to work and people would be like, the internet? What? You have this at home? Explain it to me. And within two years, everyone had it, okay? We're talking mid to late 90s, and big coincidence, the wrestling business exploded in the late 90s. You could not go to a mall. You could not go to an amusement park and look in any direction and not see either an Austin 316 shirt or an NWO shirt or some kind of a wrestling shirt. Absolutely. I can't tell you the last time I saw that, saw someone in a wrestling shirt. Well, last time I was at the Providence Civic Center at a WWE event. That was like three years ago. But other than that, I can't, cannot remember seeing one. The internet definitely changed wrestling, but it, it's a matter of taste. I don't think you can objectively say it changed for the worst. I mean, in the earliest internet days, Raw was doing, I mean, they did a record 9.1, which was unimaginable you know, before or after. So I, I just don't think you could say any of these things hurt wrestling. Fair enough. And I only said it just because I wasn't sure if there needed to be a definitive answer for this. But all of your stuff is completely valid. And with regards to you mentioning the uh, woman co-worker in you know, 1996 talking about how the Internet and technology is going to destroy us all, for anybody who wishes to learn a little bit more about that kind of stuff and that kind of general omnipresence, I wanted to make mention that a Canadian scholar, and people have obviously heard of him, I know that Vandal Drummond, our, our dear pal, definitely has because I've seen him quoted quite a bit. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, uh, you know, his term, the medium is the message. And he was the person that predicted the World Wide Web, you know, almost 30, 40 years before it was conceived. And also wanted to make mention to Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian, but also was raised 
in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I live and studied nice. at the University of Manitoba, where I graduated from. So a lot of smart people come out of Manitoba. You know, you got the you got the Chris Jericho's of the world. Who cares? The Kenny Omega. Who cares? The Jonathan Taves of the world. Who cares? You got Marshall McLuhan. That's where I the smarts go. I am a go. big Chris Jericho fan. He's one of my eh, 10. Not anymore. 10 most favorite wrestlers in the world for me all time. And he is from the peg KO. <laughs> he is, you know, I begrudgingly accept it too. It is kind of tough because everybody's like, Oh, Chris Jericho's from Winnipeg. I'm like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> you know, he's like, and that's kind of the thing, you know, and maybe that's me being a bit of a persnickety bastard, but you know, it's just, you know, I'm not a big homeboy. Like I'm not a big homebody. I don't have to, I don't want to like somebody just because they're from somewhere that I'm from. It's like, okay, like, uh, you know, if everybody from Chicago, like if all the people that are from Chicago, I'd be like, okay, you know what, that makes sense. But, you know, because of Winnipeg and what it is, I don't know. I'm just kind of indifferent. Chris Jericho, I, I will, I'll stop my tangent and go off. Chris Jericho, fantastic when he came back for his heel run in like 2009, 2010, where he was kind of the Nick Bockwinkle persona. Since 2010 with the CM Punk stuff, straight downhill i'm sorry we don't need to get into it any further he was great for the time in the 90s but now he's kind of resembling more of hangman bruce poe bands i think with that whole spike jacket painmaker stuff more than anything really so that's just me no i that that's the thing with chris i mean you know he's he's still good at what he does in my opinion but i mean father time remains undefeated he's close to 50 years old if he if, if he's not already 50 but when he was in the WWF in like 2008, I would watch that and I'd be like, that's what I would be if I were a pro wrestler. That was the character I had in mind if I was ever big enough to be a pro wrestler, which I was never even close. But anyway, Stan Guzik, if Crockett doesn't lose Piper to the WWE, this is like, I'm guessing 1983, 1984, could they have taken the company national with a feud built around Piper and Flair? Jace, what do you think? You know what? This is kind of be one of those questions where I might have to send it back to you, but I, I'm just going to pepper in some knowledge as to what I know about that kind of time, too. Obviously, Piper and Flair were friends, very connected. Obviously, in 83, you know, before Piper left, before Starcade, you know, they were aligned. In 81, 82, were they rivals with each other or were Piper and Flair kind of always aligned with each other as faces or heels? Probably the best, like, 10-minute segment in wrestling history was the I want to see either the very end of 1980 or the it had to be the very beginning of 1980 when when Roddy Piper won the United States Championship from Ric Flair at least at one point was on YouTube and they have Roddy Piper come out with the United States Championship and Flair confronts him and the two of them were just they weren't gold they were platinum they were unbelievable I invite everyone to check that out. It was so great. Piper was just out of control. But yeah, they did have a rivalry in, you know, like I said, early 1981. Then Piper turned babyface in 1982, and they didn't do anything with each other, I don't think, after that. But to answer Stan's question, recently, like a month ago, I watched some of the 1993 Survivor Series. and. On the lead babyface team was Lex Luger, the Steiner brothers, and The Undertaker. And I just said to myself, wow, if you're just a WCW fan, these guys look familiar. I am not saying the wrestlers are interchangeable. They certainly are not. But here we are, it was 1993, and the WWF was pushing guys who just left WCW. Maybe not Undertaker. He left like two years 
previous, but the year before Luger and the Steiners were in WCW and they weren't doing well there. WCW certainly wasn't doing well, but they were, they were doing reasonably well with the WWF. I know the WWF didn't have a good 1983, but I guess the point is that no matter what, Vince was going to succeed and Crockett wasn't. Even if you gave Crockett, I'm serious when I say this, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Roddy Piper, Ric Flair, I really believe that Vince McMahon was going to find a way to win this thing. He was the master Absolutely. at marketing these guys. And WCW, Crockett, Watts, whoever, just, just couldn't figure that part out. Yeah, and it's probably because of the ethnography and the type of fans as well, you know. On one of the Jim Cornette shows, uh, I think he had mentioned if, you know, Hogan was in Crockett in, uh, you know, 84, 85. And I think it would have been a completely different trajectory. I just don't think that Hogan nor Crockett would have had the heights of success that each of them had separately uh, in this current reality and time frame. So I, I agree with you. Absolutely. And with regards to actually answering the question, too, it's, um, you know, I, I think that it could be done with Piper and Flair. But. Flair is a babyface too. It's just I'm always so used to associating him as a heel. I know that he did obviously did well as a face. I, I apologize if I'm getting the times wrong, but I guess uh, 81, 81-ish. Like was was uh, Flair a face still, or was he? I, he was. I don't remember if it was because of the the blackjack um, Mulligan stuff or when that actually came into being. You know, 83, 84. I'm not too sure, but Flair was good as a face. But I just I don't know if I could see it working with Piper and Flair, if Piper was the heel and Flair was the baby. Yeah, I, I think Piper, once you turn him baby, it's, it's hard to turn him back. I mean, he's just that kind of personality. But to answer your question, Flair turned baby face in 1979 over something that happened with Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke. And then he won the NWA championship. So now he's no longer just in mid-Atlantic wrestling. And he kind of, in Mid-Atlantic, he kind of went back and forth. I mean, I, I could only follow it through the magazines, but, like, sometimes he was palling around with Greg Valentine, and then he'd go back to palling around with Ricky Steamboat, and the it was never really spelled out for us. I don't know. But Aaron Tallis, his question kind of leads into this one. What's your opinion on if Ted DiBiase stays with Crockett in 1987 instead of going to the WWF? What direction does his career go. Do you have any, any thoughts on this, Jace? To be brutally honest, obviously wouldn't have had as much success as he did as the million dollar man gimmick. And not that I'm saying that that was the be all end all. Ted's a great wrestler. I loved his mid South stuff, Ted Debussy, but yes. um, you know, and I've seen a little bit of the Japan stuff with Stan Hansen and the, the tag real world tag league and stuff, but great wrestler. It's just, you know, if he stays in Crockett with the UWF stuff in 87, I, I don't think he would hit as high of a, a, a mainstream ceiling as he did in the WWF being a upper mid card guy. I, I don't know. I just, I really don't see it. What about you, John? Well, for starters, I think Ted wakes up screaming every night, having nightmares about, you know, seeing Kurt Henning or Terry Taylor or whoever is the million dollar man, knowing yeah. that that could have been him. I, I, you know, he so made the right decision. He didn't leave mid South right away after the, the purchase, they were going to turn him heel and have him feud with Dr. Death, Steve Williams. They announced the Ted versus Williams match the week before he left. And, you know, then the next week he's no longer in the Mid-South top 10 rankings and he's just basically gone and shows wow. up in the WWF. But they had a commissioner named John Ayers, who 
announced that Steve Williams was the number one contender and Ted DiBiase was number two. And Ted kind of got in John Ayer's face. So you could tell Ted was about to turn heel and he left right before that. What trajectory would he have gone in? I mean, not many of the UWF guys landed on their feet after that sale. There's Sting and then that's just about it. Steve Williams Mm -hmm. was a mid-carder. You know, Eddie Gilbert and Terry Taylor were gone by the end of the year. So I'd like to say that if I was in charge of JCP, I would have made sure Ted DiBiase stayed on and he would have replaced Ric Flair as the head of the four horsemen with Ric Flair being the babyface. And then I would have gone with the big Ric Flair versus Ted DiBiase feud. But unfortunately for everyone, I was not in charge. Dusty was. And I I don't think Dusty would have treated Ted quite as well as many, many of us would have. Just going to say, baby, I wasn't sure if your buddy Dusty Rhodes was in charge still. But no, it's just and again, I didn't know what Dusty's relationship was like with Teddy. But I think what you said about, you know, Ted and Flair feuding, it's shades back to 81 when they were both, you know, kind of in contendership for the NWA title. And I think it probably could have been pulled off, you know, six, seven years later. Absolutely. Yeah. Ted is one of those wrestlers, you know, Lex Luger, his nickname was the total package. No, Ted DiBiase was the total package. Ric Flair was the total package. No disrespect to Lex, who I liked, but, you know, again, Ted was the total package, and I I don't think Dusty would have used him correctly. Uh, Edward Whipke asked, what if Ric Flair went with Tully and Arn to the WWF in 1988? Chase, what do you think? This would be very interesting, and I've thought about this a little bit. See, I guess the problem with WWF is that when it comes to factions of any kind, there has to be, you know, kind of a centerpiece manager. And as much as I like Bobby Heenan, I don't know if he could fill that J.J. Dillon role, I guess, if Flair, Tully, and Arn were all kind of aligned. I think it would be boffo business, especially, you know, Tully and Arn had, I don't know how much they moved the needle, you know, uh, buys or rating wise, but obviously, you know, their matches with the Rockers were fantastic. So... I don't know. I mean, and it's just even that time, I know that obviously by the time Flair and Hogan got together in the WWF, kind of those preliminary matches, I know Vince said it was, you know, five, six years too late. So even at 88, you know, when Flair was still kind of on top, it's just, oh, there's there's so much to think about that I really, I can't even think of a, a general trajectory for it. But I think it would do great business. I just couldn't see how else it would play out. What about you, John? Well, here's the thing. Number one, and I was saying this back in 1988 when um, Tully and Arn had left and everyone's contract had been breached. So Ric Flair and Barry Windham, I, I know Ric Flair had talks with the WWF there. There was a preliminary plan to have him debut at SummerSlam 88, which obviously didn't happen. But they were advertising, you know, someone who had never been at Madison Square Garden before will appear at SummerSlam. And. It turned out to be Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who had been in Madison Square Garden plenty of times. But the original plan, that was going to be Ric Flair. So that's how deep into talks they were. But And there was also talk, you know, Arn and Tully had already left. Barry and Rick could have come in. People were like, oh, the four horsemen, the WWF. And I was like, there's no way Vince is going to do that. Wouldn't have been the same. No, it, w- it wouldn't have. And it's not Vince was not going to take a unique JCP product and bring it to the WWF. That's just not how Vince played ball. But to answer the question, what if he went fall 1980? I remember hearing 
like the th- I want to say the Thursday before Columbus Day, which is early October, that you know Tully and Arn were coming in. No, it was right around Labor Day. My apologies. Um, same thing, Columbus Day, Labor Day. Um, so it was September, and I, I was, you know, if they had brought Rick in, here's what I think, and a lot of people might disagree with this. They already had had it planned out that Randy Savage, WWF champion, was going to turn heel, and WrestleMania was going to be Randy Savage versus Hulk Hogan. Now, they had had this planned for a while. They were like six months away from executing the plan. To me, there is no way they could have made Randy Savage versus Hulk Hogan bigger than Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan. And I think if they had gotten Rick around this time, I think they would have rearranged their plans and they would have had Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, probably much to the chagrin of Randy Savage. My guess is that Ric Flair would have won the WWF championship from Randy Savage and they would have gone into WrestleMania with Ric Flair defending the WWF championship against Hulk Hogan. And like I said, I don't think there is any way they could have made Ric Flair, actually be Hulk Hogan versus Randy Savage bigger than that match. And I completely agree. Well, thank you, sir. All right. You know, I want to thank everyone who took the time to ask questions and I'm sorry we could not get to all of them. That was my, my bad slap me on the wrist for putting up a, a mailbag post. When I've got college football going on in the background and I'm like all excited about that. And I left the post open too long and I just allowed for too many questions. My bad. And I apologize, but <laughs> yeah, really, but I wanted to get to this question. This is the last one we're going to ask. It was asked by Kevin Elias and Kevin, if you're listening, I promise I'm not making fun of you, but the question was, do you think Ric Flair will ever get another run at the top? Jace, what do you think? I personally am not a big fan of elder abuse. Um, and I feel like watching Ric Flair, and I, it was demonstrated on your Twitter timeline as well, watching him with that god-awful AAA thing with Andrade and Kenny Omega and Conan, I was embarrassed. Like, I get it. I understand, you know, the currency of it. I understand, you know, oh, Ric Flair, he's finally out of the WWE. But again, and I'm not, and again, Kevin, I'm, I'm not saying this to you. I'm just saying in general, but if you really think that having a geriatric as a champion for one more run, I groaned even watching back footage of Flair, like in the late nineties or whenever his last title run was in WCW. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It devalues any sense of realism. It would just be a cheap thing for a day. Have him retire. I get it, but never Rick, please. Money's great, but never, never step foot in the ring again. I'm sorry. And again, you have your opinions on it. We saw the Twitter stuff. I've seen your interactions that you had with people, John. It was disgusting. And, you know, I know Conan sold even worse for it. And I know Conan's in pretty bad shape. I'm sure great guy. I've always respected Conan's career. But guys, come on. Like, let's be real here, please. All right. And again, totally not being disrespectful to Kevin no, or anyone No, else. no, not at all. Um, Story time, okay? I, once again, first got on the internet in 1995, right? This new toy, and AOL had a, America Online had a pro wrestling forum, which I spent some time on. And there was this guy who repeatedly insisted that the key to solving all of WCW's problems in 1995 
was to reform and bring back the Freebirds. Okay, and he kept saying this, and finally I was polite about it, but I broke it down for him. I said, okay, who, yeah, and he was insistent, no Jimmy Garvin, so we won't talk about him. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, let me break this down for you. Who are the Freebirds? Buddy Roberts. Buddy Roberts started looking old and beat up in 1987. By 1988, he couldn't even wrestle for world class. He was the manager of the SST, feuding with Michael Hayes in that role. So seven years ago, world class felt like they couldn't even use him in the ring. But wait, 1991, early 1991, they were going to bring Buddy Roberts back for a six-man tag, I, I believe for a clash of the champions, just a nostalgia kick. Buddy shows up at the building, they take one look at him, and they're like, we're not putting this guy on camera. That was four years ago. And so now we're bringing Buddy Roberts back in, in 95 when in, they couldn't use him in 88. Who else are the Freebirds? Terry Gordy. Terry Gordy, and it was a sad sight, had suffered through two major overdoses. And I'm not trying to be cruel here, but he clearly had suffered some serious brain damage. If you watched him do an interview in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, yeah. you could clearly yeah. see this. Okay. So that's what Terry Gordy is now. Michael Hayes. Okay. In 92, WCW was using him as a manager because they didn't want him in the ring. Because he, even though he was only like 32, he looked too old and he wasn't a good wrestler anymore. Now, three years later, you want to bring him back. Okay. My point is that Father Time will always remain undefeated in the long run. And, you know, I understand we can put in a videotape of Ric Flair, a DVD of Ric Flair from the 70s or 80s. And we're like, wow, this guy's fantastic. But it's 2021 and he's 71 or 72 years old. And Father Time, as you had mentioned, Jace, through that clip is clearly caught up with Ric Flair. I mean, he tried to put the figure four on Conan. It sounds good. It, in reality, it was atrocious. I loved the way the WWF retired Ric Flair in 2008 and the, the ceremony they gave him on Raw. I mean, I, I was literally crying. I mean, it was so emotional. And it was the end of the era I grew up with. Ric Flair was the last guy, and now he's retired. And just to put it in perspective, Rick came out of retirement in 2010, he was wrestling for TNA, and Spike TV sent TNA a, a memo after they did an angle where Ric Flair wrestled and juiced, and they specifically said, we don't want to have an old man in his underwear covered in blood on our network. That was 11 years ago. So yeah, just time has gone on, and, and Rick just can't do it anymore. I hope Tony Khan brings him in and does something respectful and good with him but that's about it man he's, he's 71 or 72 time's moved on yeah and but john you also forgot the other legendary freebird members like big daddy dink and bad street and max muscle what about them <laughs> brad street <laughs> no actually believe it or not I, I remember this this guy was very specific hayes gordy and roberts were the key to wcw being successful once again and it was almost like this guy didn't get it. It's not 1981 anymore. It's not even 1986 anymore when the Freebirds were in Mid-South slash UWF and they didn't draw. And producer Lou also just brought up Little Richard Marley, Rocky King. Ah, that was, oh my God. Even just seeing that stuff in uh, 
1990 when they did the glam face paint oh my god like so kitschy too and everybody can say what they want to say about jimmy garvin during that time everybody's beating it to death obviously but oh like just uh i mean i've I've never been to a high school reunion but it's like you know going to a high school reunion and it's like the old story you see this girl that you were super hot for and she's put on 80 pounds that's what the freebirds were like with jimmy garvin (laughs) anyway So, Jace, thank you for coming on. Jace, K.O. Nakarado, you did a great job as always, sir. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be on, you know, when we've spoken off air and I've expressed my appreciation for it. And, uh, you know, hopefully people can get something out of this episode, maybe from me, but mostly probably from what John had to say as well. Uh, but your, just... <laughs> your, your perspective is greatly appreciated. I'm sincere oh, when I you. say that. Thank you. And you know what? I... Uh, you know, we may not all get along, but we still love wrestling. We try to be as cordial as we can with everybody. And I appreciate any feedback about my appearance. And, you know, if uh, if you have any comments or concerns, uh, please send it to my OnlyFans account. You know, I'm on there usually with mayonnaise videos. And it is actual mayonnaise, not, you know, the other <laughs> the other type of mayonnaise. And it's uh, my, oh, username is, my username <laughs> is fan of flan 726 I usually post daily videos. And... Uh, it's a lot of fun. Just if you feel like donating to me, helping me out during these svelte pandemic times, please feel free to uh, pop on by. But in all seriousness, thank you very much, John, for having me on. Thank you to Lou for producing as always. And uh, this was fun. Hopefully to see you guys on the Facebook page and any comments or concerns. Well, I'll try to get them when I can. If you love me, thank you. If you hate me, go fly a kite. I don't know what to tell you. Go jump in the lake. Kick rocks. <laughs> I'll have to find the video on Twitter where the guy yesterday, one of the football games, poured a giant, like a, uh, like a 10-gallon thing of mayonnaise all over himself. <laughs> and funny enough, friend of the show and uh, great guy Mark Beaudry sent me that video. I think it was college football. And it's the guy just chugging Duke's mayonnaise because I, yes. I love Duke's mayonnaise. And that's kind of a running joke uh, with my presence on the Internet that I love mayonnaise. I'm the Mayo King. But, oh, my God, like I was disgusted. So, Mark, I didn't know if you thought that I would like that much amount of mayonnaise. But, my God, it was uh, it was brutal. I was a little bit jealous because I actually do need to go buy some more Duke's mayonnaise from Amazon because they don't sell it in Canada, John. You know, I got to gotta get it through these backdoor channels, you know. But uh, it was disgusting. I was kind of turned on a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I'll have to watch it again. But all for the Dukes. Thank you, Mark, for sending it to me. And, yeah, I completely know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think <laughs> it was absolutely gross, but yeah, thanks for coming on. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, giant sky point to Seth Hansen. We're going to miss you, Seth. And I hope everyone has a good week. I hope you all had a great Labor Day weekend. Thank you, Lou Kippelman, our producer for all the great work you do. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Go Vols. This concludes our podcast day. 